every happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil White, joined as always by my brother David White. And David, after our last episode, I went out and bought some new maps. So I think I'm all good to go. Thanks for joining me. So you're the navigator now? Yeah, always have a navigator is the lesson I learned on the last podcast. It's the August long weekend. People are taking a day off. Hope everyone's enjoying their day off listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And uh, David, we got a big announcement here. A big announcement. I'm excited, Neil. This is great. We have t-shirts and we have hats. So we're going to give away a free t-shirt and a free hat. Oh Brother, When Art Thou? Very stylish looking hats and t-shirts, if I do say so myself. All you have to do to win is go on Facebook. There'll be a contest post on Facebook. Share that post, like our page so that we can contact you, and you could win. We'll randomly pick a winner. So uh, we'll we'll give away one hat, one t-shirt on Facebook. Just share the contest post and like it. David, you're not allowed to win. Ah, that's too bad because those are very stylish shirts and hats. I can confirm. I've seen them. All right. Good luck to everybody with the contest. All right. Let's get into this podcast, David. Uh, I have to ask, oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's November 9th, 1850 at Windsor Castle, and seven-year-old Sarah Forbes Bonetta is meeting Queen Victoria for the first time. Okay. I've heard of Queen Victoria. I haven't heard of Bonetta. Why is she meeting the queen? Well... She's a princess. Maybe. Maybe. Usually you know if you're a princess or not. Take us back, Dave, and give us a little bit of the backstory of what's going on here. All right. So we should really start in 1847 when an army from the Dahomey Empire, which is based in what is now the Republic of Benin in Africa, is invading the territories of the Egba tribe, located in what's now northern Nigeria, also an African nation. Okay, so we started out with Queen Victoria. Now we're in Africa. Bonin in Nigeria is the areas. What's the battle that's going on here? Why are these countries and these uh, tribes fighting, David? This is a slave raid. The Dahomey Empire are slavers. They capture uh, their fellow Africans and then sell them to European slave traders to take them across the North Atlantic and sell them to various plantations in the New World. One of the children they've just captured is a young woman known in her home country as Ana, but later to be given the British name of Sarah. Okay, so this is Sarah, and she might be a princess? Well, the trouble is that most of our records of Sarah, come from a European perspective. And the Europeans, the British specifically in this case, did not always have the most accurate view of what was happening in Africa at the time. Certainly, Captain Frederick Forbes of the Royal Navy believed that she was the daughter of a chief when he, I guess we could say, acquired her. 
rescued her, maybe, because he did end up freeing her from the Dahomey capital. So Sarah's been kidnapped, captured by the Dahomey, but Captain Forbes is going to rescue her. Rescued, like I say, is a strong term. He's on a diplomatic mission to the king of the Dahomey to ask him to stop enslaving people now that the British Empire has ended the practice of slavery within their territories in 1838. Okay, so the British are no longer allowing slavery. And they're asking that everybody else join them in that decision. But in Africa, where it's a critical portion of some of the economies of some of the nations in this region of West Africa, that's a complicated request to make of powerful politicians. Okay, so what does Captain Forbes do with his new princess that he's acquired? So he asks for and receives Sarah Forbes as a gift, gives her the name Sarah, because he has difficulty pronouncing her native name, and he decides to name her after his ship, the HMS Bonetta, which gives us her full name by which she's known to history, Sarah Forbes Bonetta. And then he decides to send her to Queen Victoria as essentially a gift. All right, and this brings us to Sarah Forbes Bonetta meeting with Queen Victoria. How old is she? She is seven years old. Just seven years old and maybe a princess. And maybe a princess. What's her reception like with the queen? Well, apparently Queen Victoria's charmed, thinks that she's very intelligent and courageous and asks that she be taken care of by the British government at their expense on the grounds that she should be. And how does that go over in Britain? Well, at this point, the ending of slavery is still relatively new and exciting. There's still a large abolitionist contingent in British politics who entered British politics in order to fight for the abolition of slavery, and they're looking for a new purpose now that they've succeeded. And one of the big goals that they've got is to extend this abolition of slavery, not just within British territories, but all around the world. And they view Sarah Forbes Bonetta, this, in their view, princess of a tribe that clearly is not happy with slavery since they're the ones being enslaved, as a great symbol, a symbol of what they stand for. So they decide to send her to Sierra Leone. Why would they want to send her to Sierra Leone? Well, Sierra Leone, the same as the modern-day country in Africa, is a recently created colony of Britain, and a number of these pro-abolition politicians support its creation as a new home for freed Africans who had formerly been slaves, a way to return them to where, to a Victorian Englishman, it seems like they belong. So they view this as a flagmark project, or a flagship project, and therefore sending a princess to be there is exciting and hopefully will make Sierra Leone more exciting for everyone else. 
Okay, so does young Sarah get shipped off now to Sierra Leone? She does, but before she goes, she gets baptized as a Christian, because that's very important to Victorian Britain. And her godmother at the ceremony is Queen Victoria. Quite the godmother. Indeed. So young Sarah goes to Sierra Leone, lives there briefly, decides that she's not thrilled with Sierra Leone for whatever reason, asks to go back to Britain, is allowed to return to Britain, and ends up back in Brighton. Okay, and is the weather in Brighton better than Sierra Leone? I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't imagine, but I guess that's where she wanted to go back to. But eventually, she grows up, she falls in love with a another ex-slave, she marries him, they move back to Africa, but they decide not to move to Sierra Leone. They move to Lagos, which is quite close to where she was originally from, and then they live so far as our records are available happily ever after. Well, that's a great story. It is. I'm glad one of these podcasts finally had a happily ever after, because it seems like usually the people we're talking about end up in jail. Usually they do. And because I'm distressed that I'm giving you a happily ever after, I wanted to go back and discuss a little the politics of the slave raid, which initially captured young Sarah Bonetta, and, you know, add some generally depressing African politics to this otherwise uplifting story. Oh, darn. (laughs) All right. So back to 1847 in the Egba territories close to the city of Abeokuta. It's called the City Amongst the Rocks. Okay. And it, at the time, is a new place. Well, a new city. Initially, the Egba tribe had been members of the Oyo Empire. And the Dahomey Kingdom had also been tributaries to the Oyo Empire, which was a very large African empire. But... In the 1800s, the early 1810s and 20s, the Oyo Empire collapsed. Is this when the Dahomey became slavers? This is when the Dahomey began slave raiding, specifically. They'd already sold some of their own people who'd committed crimes to the transatlantic slave trade, but now they begin kidnapping people from neighboring tribes. And the weakest militarily of the tribes in the immediate area to the Dahomey Empire are the Egba, which is not a great situation for them. No, it wouldn't seem like it. So, initially, they were mostly a scattered people living in smaller villages rather than in a large city, but these new slave raids from Dahomey add a new pressure to gather together to defend themselves. And Abeokuta is a great place for them to build this city where they're coming together because it is, as its name implies, amongst a large group of very large rocks which serve as a sort of pre-made defensive position to help them defend their home territory. Well, that would seem to be what they needed at this time. 
how does it work out for them? Well, they start coming together, and the Dahomey Raiders, as people flee the outlying villages, start to follow them. By 1850, when Sarah Bonetta is meeting Queen Victoria in Windsor Castle, the Dahomey's armies have decided to attack Abeokuta directly, rather than simply raiding around its edges. Okay, and so this is going to be... I would gather a bigger type of assault on the city. This is the dramatic showdown. The Dahomey have gathered together their warriors, their army. They're mostly armed with muskets, which are the standard military technology of the time. And they march shoulder to shoulder directly at the city. We have a record of this in English because Henry Townsend, a British missionary, happened to be living and preaching in Abeokuta at the time. And how did it go, according to him? He tells us that the Dahomey's armies were larger initially than the Egba had expected, and they forced the ford of the river before the city and were marching on the city. But rather than being terrified, the Egba were rallied together by desperation seeing that this was their refuge and so their armies were only growing even as they fell back to the walls and eventually they gathered at Olumo Rock a local large rock which was both a shrine in the native religion and a cornerstone of their defensive walls there the Dahomey simply didn't have the siege technology to force the wall and the battle became very bloody briefly. Both sides had muskets and were firing them at very short ranges into dense packed troops. The sort of battle that would have been immediately recognizable to any European general of a generation before when muskets had been the standard uh, military technology in Europe. But eventually, the Dahomey could not withstand the casualties they were taking and were forced to retreat. According to Townsend, they organized an impressive fighting retreat that held their troops together and made it back to their territory. But the casualties they took holding off the Egba who pursued them all the way meant that they never again truly threatened the city of Abeokuta the way they had before, although the outlying raids on outlying towns would continue for decades. So this is a victory for the Egba. This is a dramatic victory for the Egba, and it is partially because they now have access to weaponry from the city of Lagos, which you may recall is where in a few more years Sarah Bonetta will end up settling. Were they being assisted by the British? In a sense. The British are selling weapons in the city of Lagos in return for palm oil, which was a major trade item between Africa and Europe at the time. There's a local dignitary, the wife of a former Oba, or king of Lagos, known to the British as Madame Tinubu, who gets involved in selling weapons to the Egba in Abeokuta 
allegedly she's involved in practically all of the trade going in and out of Lagos from the legal and popular palm oil trade with the British to illegal efforts to sell slaves to the Portuguese uh, who shipped them to Brazil. But regardless of the truth of that, to the people of Abeokuta, she's a hero because she gives them the weapons they need to defend their city and to start creating a a defense. Certainly a complicated time. There's a lot going on here, David. So let's add one more little wrinkle. The Dahomey Empire's army, which marched on Abeokuta, at its head was a regiment which European history would call the Dahomey Amazons, but which the Dahomey themselves called the Miho or Ahosi. They're an all-woman regiment. Right, the Amazon name would seem to imply that. Uh, was that fairly unique for the world at that time? This is very unusual in the world of 1850. And were they effective? They, you said they were at the head of the army. In some ways, they were more effective than the Dahomey army's male troops. The reason for that is because the Ahosi remained in the army year-round. It was their profession, whereas other troops in the Dahomey army would spend some of their time farming and only some of their time serving as soldiers. So that was partially a cultural thing about women's roles, but it actually made them more effective. Well, that's impressive. And it was absolutely fascinating to the Europeans of the period. It's practically impossible to find a writing in English or French about the Dahomey Empire, which does not mention, as they called them, the Amazons. I imagine for them, coming from their Eurocentric worldview, you know, where all the soldiers were men, this would be quite an outlier and quite a sight to see these women leading the charge into battle. Absolutely. It was shocking to European society practically every time it came up uh, that there were there was actually a kingdom that used women soldiers and used them successfully. So what happens to the Dahomey and the Egba? Well, the Egba end up slowly being drawn into the British Empire initially with treaties with the various chiefs and leaders, but increasingly, as time goes on, the British control more and more the country. But it's actually not until 1914 that the British take formal control of the Egba territories specifically as part of their colony of Nigeria, which will, of course, eventually become free and become the Republic of Nigeria, which is the nation of that area to this day. And the different way of life and the different way of treating women specifically in this region don't go away simply because of the imposition of British rule. Actually, at Abeokuta specifically, 
1918, there's a series of riots, which the British call the Abeokuta Women's Riots, driven by increased taxation to pay for the First World War, which has just ended. And then, in a little repeat of that experience, in 1946, the British again decide to raise taxes to pay for the end of a world war that they've fought mostly in Europe. And they decide to specifically raise taxes on women because women are, I'm not going to say more wealthy in this society, but more wealthy than the British respect. They view it as somewhat suspect that there are independent women who have their own businesses. And this leads to another revolt, the Abeokuta Women's War. Now, both of these revolts are unsuccessful, but they help to keep alive a very different political tradition than the one that the British colonizers wished to see in Nigeria. No surprise there, I guess, from the British Empire. No surprise there, yes. As for the Dahomey, their future will be different. The French land in the region of modern Benin in the 1880s and begin to create a colony there. And they almost immediately start coming into conflict with the Dahomey, who have always been a militarily expansionist empire, typically at war with their neighbors. But unfortunately for the Dahomey, the French are not another African people with a comparable military for them to struggle against. In 1890, their first war against the French Empire begins. In 1894, their second war against the French Empire ends with the entire country's political system violently crushed and the imposition of direct colonial rule from France. In just four years. In just four years, uh, their military is badly outmatched at this stage by the new weapons that the French are bringing to the continent. Machine guns, artillery, bolt-action rifles, these are far more advanced than the muskets that the Dahomey are used to fighting with. Well, David, I thought we were going to have a podcast with a happy ending for once. I'm not sure that qualifies. Thanks for telling us the story nonetheless. I wanted to add a bit of context because I thought that sometimes a bit of context helps to understand where the people who have their own lives and do fascinating things and meet perhaps fascinating people come from. Not unlike Sarah Forbes Bonetta, who got to meet Queen Victoria. Exactly. All right, just about time to uh, play a quick game here, David. Of course, don't forget to enter our Facebook contest on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle is at WhenArtThou. And by email, you can get us ohbrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com. All right, David, a bit of a different type of game today. Uh, I don't have a good name for this one. Ooh, we're going we're gonna to call this... Uh, who fought it? All right. Just came up with that all by myself. I'm pretty proud of it. So the idea behind this game, David, is that 
I'm going to read you off the commanders and leaders from a battle, starting with the least well-known. And you're going to try and guess what battle it is before I get to the most well-known. Tricky. Let's try it. All right. So stop me when you figure out what battle we're talking about. Uh, the least well-known commander in this battle, Eustace II, Count of Boulogne. On the other side of the battle, we had Leof Wine Godwinson. 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 All right. On Eustace's side, we had William Fitzosborne. Another Godwinson on the other side, Gerth Godwinson. Perhaps the Battle of Hastings in 1066? Oh, you're correct. Good job, David. Of course, this is the uh, Norman Conquest of England. The other commanders were Alan the Red, Harold Godwinson, and William of Normandy. Of course, he's the famous one in that battle and the victor. Good job, David. All right, I got two more for you. This game takes a little bit longer, so we'll, we'll just play three here, all right? Sounds reasonable. All right. In our next battle, we have... On the winning side, Omar Bradley. On the other side, Eric Brandenburger. Brandenburger. Are you perhaps talking about the Battle of the Bulge in World War II? Oh, you're correct. Only two generals for you to get that, David. Well done. There were a bunch more on the German side, and uh, Bernard Montgomery and Dwight D. Eisenhower on the the winning side of the Battle of the Bulge. Good job, David. Thank you. All right. One more here with our game of Who Fought It? And I think you're going to get this one pretty quickly. Roger Hale Sheaf. On the other side, Winfield Scott. Oh, man. Sheaf. This is a War of 1812 one, so I should get it. And I need to remember which battles he fought in. Uh, got any more commanders? Stephen Van Rensselaer. Van Rensselaer? As I recall, he fought at the Battle of Queenston Heights. Three for three. Very good, David. The other one in that battle was Isaac Brock. Good job figuring out these battles just from the names of the commanders. Little bit of luck there, but I take it when I can get it. I'm impressed. We're going to have to play this game again. Thanks for listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? Thou.